Hello, I'm Andrew Mayle and you are listening to the Mojo Record Club, a place where music lovers, musicians, crate diggers, writers, readers and special guests get to share their love for classic albums, weird lost gems and brand new revelations. My guests today are Mojo editor John Mulvey and Jody Stevens. Hello to you both. Hi there. Hello, Andrew. It's, it's wonderful to be here. Pleasure. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Jody is perhaps best known to Mojo listeners as the drummer, linchpin, and torchbearer for the past 50 years of Memphis Godhead's Big Star. He is also the vice president of production at the legendary Ardent Studios. And since 2016, he has been with Luther Russell in Roots power pop duo Those Pretty Wrongs, who have a gorgeous new album out at the end of March entitled Holiday Camp. Before we speak to Jody, here is a very small snippet of the beautifully bittersweet Paper Cup, written by Jody Stevens and Luther Russell, with additional glockenspiel work by REM producer and extended member of the Big Star family, Mitch Easter. Heart is a paper cup. I'm gonna fill it up. Gonna hold it up. My heart is a paper cup. Yeah, gonna fill it up, fill it up. You might hear a little uh, noise in the background. It's it's uh, we're undergoing a pretty massive reno- renovation at Arden. The fact that you're doing it from Arden is a brilliant thing in the first place. Yeah, I, I lucky enough to work here for thirty uh, since six January of uh, eighty seven on the business side of things. But you know, other than that, I was I was introduced to John Fry in, in March of nineteen seventy. Wow. We all started, we got Chris and Andy and I started hanging out at Arden. Hey, you're listening to the Mojo Record Club with Jody Stevens, me, and uh, Big Star and Those Pretty Rocks. Jody, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's really lovely to have you here. And it's been, it's been an absolute delight listening to um, the Holiday Camp album this past week. I love how it's this connection point with your past but also your influences but also those who you've influenced down the years so i kind of listen to the album i can hear bits of emmett rhodes in there i can also hear bits of olivia tremor control obviously big star wilco it feels like this really joyous meeting place between kind of past your past present and future in a way i definitely it's uh it's it's the input of the last uh 50 or so, I'm probably 55 years of uh, music and what I've been listening to and those influences, certainly Alex and Chris and Andy from Big Star and, and you know, <clears throat> spent a bit of time with uh, Jeff Tweedy and and uh, Gary Lewis and, and, and Golden Smog. And so, you know, you pick up influences along the way and then certainly it's uh, colored a lot by Luther Russell and his music arrangements and his little chord patterns. It's interesting hearing you up front and central in this band more than you were in Big Star in a way. And I wondered if you were ever frustrated, you know, having written songs as great as for you, whether you were ever frustrated that your songs couldn't be heard more in Big Star. Not at all. I felt lucky to be along. I even, you know, I was, (laughs) when Annie and Chris and I got together, I was 17 and, and they were 18, and back then, you know, a year made a big difference. But I was I was pretty unsure of myself, so I just kind of kept my mouth shut because I didn't, what I was hearing was was uh, wonderful, and I just didn't want to screw it up. So I just uh, stayed quiet and tried to create my own little drum world. One of the things that is kind of fascinating about the history of Big Star is that it's this, these, there are these albums that kind of, exist between known and not known and kind of they hover in that world and then suddenly somebody rediscovers them and they become embraced by people and then they go on to influence new generations of fans and the record you've brought in to talk about today which is the self-titled debut album and I think and to this date the only album by the Alabama-born Texas-based singer-songwriter Willis Allen Ramsey 
kind of exists in a similar world. It was re- released on Leon, Leon Russell's Shelter recording label in 1972. Now, this is an album that features tracks that have been covered by Jimmy Buffett, Sean Colvin, Jimmy Dale Gilmore, Waylon Jennings, to name but four. It is the album that inspired Lyle Lovett to become a songwriter. One of the tracks, Muskrat Candlelight, was turned into a soft pop million seller called Muskrat Love by Captain and Tennille. And yet, you look, you read about it online, you see it repeatedly referred to as a lost album. And I'm going to include myself here in the list of people I know who, until you proposed it as the record to talk about on the podcast the other week, I'd never heard of it before. Now, how, how do you explain that? You know, how do you explain this album that kind of was in, so integral to singer-songwriters in the early 70s, so influential on a certain style of Texas songwriting. And to those people who love it and know it, it's kind of, it's in their blood. Yet to others, it's, it doesn't even exist. How do you explain that, Jody? Well, I'll tell you how I got turned on to it first. I, uh, uh, an old bandmate of mine, a guy named Mike Sane, had, had been a DJ at SMU in Texas and uh, got a copy, brought it home, and turned me on to it. And that was probably 1973. And in 1973, about that time, I think it was 20 when I first heard it. And uh, I was going through this kind of lonely, forlorn period. And and I think this album is is a great uh, performance of forlornliness, if you will. It uh, so that's how I got turned on to it, and and why is it still a relatively obscure record? Uh, it's I think maybe in part because Willis Willis grew up while well, he was born in Mississippi. He grew up in Highland Park, uh, Dallas, Texas, which is a fairly well-to-do, and I don't think he needed uh, really to see that income. I could be wrong, and consequently, I think he t- turned down a couple of big tours that uh, Leon Russell had put together for him. Uh, and while he did play, it was on kind of a limited basis, and still is, places like the Saxon Pub in, in Austin, Texas, and uh, and some other places that don't sound like big venues to me. I kind of checked that one out. But I don't know. It's, it's also, it, <clears throat> you know, it was huge in Texas. And certainly big influences yeah. on those people you mentioned. Uh, and it just sort of spread out, uh, much like people got turned on to big star records, I think. Uh, as a matter of fact... Yeah, I can see, I can definitely see a parallel there. You know, Pat Sansone uh, played Moog and, and uh, Mellotron on Those Pretty Wrongs' new record. And I just now turned him... Well, of course, he plays with Wilco and is an integral part of that and... But I just turned him on to it because I was getting excited about the record all over again and he hadn't heard of it. I was just thinking we should probably play a little bit of um, it before we carry on. And I was going to choose one of the, I think, the true standout tracks on the record. This is the sweet, lonesome, as you as you identified, one of the key qualities of the album. Sweet, lonesome and plaintive track, Goodbye Old Missoula. Written by Willis Allen Ramsey and originally released on Shelter Recording Company and A&M Records in the UK. Clouds hang on the mountain, they make me lonesome inside, and these four walls surround me, leaving no place to hide. That is good stuff. That is good, lonesome, introspective singer-songwriter stuff. And I can hear in that, you know, what you were saying about what, the, how the record appealed to you and what appealed to you about it. Yes, I, uh, he was a, he's a brilliant lyricist and in, in, in painting uh, emotional pictures like that. Uh, Spider John's one of the there, there, there are a bunch. Uh, just just reading the lyric sheets, 
you know, is entertaining enough. And I mean, an incredibly sort of precocious young man. I was reading that basically he was still, he was a teenager in 1969, just playing like kind of local coffee houses. And he heard that Leon Russell and Greg Ulmer were in town playing a festival, staying at the same hotel. So he walked in, he knocked on both of their doors and he told them that this was some guy that they should sign, sign up to their, their record labels. And they both wanted to. He um, he played his songs for, for Leon Russell and his roadie. Then he played them for Greg Orman and Dickie Betts. Both Orman and Russell offered him recording contracts there and then. I think the only reason Ramsey went with Leon Russell is because Leon was based in L.A. and he'd never been to L.A. So he thought, yeah, that should be fun. I'll do that. You know, which is an ast- astonishing kind of yeah, I read thing that story to do too. for a young man. And Greg Allman actually took him down to Capricorn, and uh, they did some demos. And why that didn't work out, I think Willis said he was still kind of green. But then, you know, Leon Russell yeah. offered him his home. He said, hey, I'm going to be on the road. Come stay at my house. I've got a studio in my house. I'll get my engineers to show you how to do it, how to work it, and just, you know, enjoy yourself in the studio. And, who can, and, you know, who and can I think that, that, sorry, John, John, go on. I was going to say, and enjoy yourself with um, some of the greatest musicians in L.A. at the time. It was oh, an insane yeah. roster I mean, of just, people. J- Jim Keltner, Kenny Buttry, Red Rhodes, James Taylor's rhythm section, Leland Sklar and, and Russ Kunkel. And one of the credits on the album is J.J. Kale. And I have a nice clip um, of Ramsey explaining just what J.J. Kale's contribution to the album was. I remember uh, uh, mostly about those sessions, uh, uh, apart from feeling that I was in the uh, deep end of the pool and kicking as hard as I could, uh, that uh, Denny and Leon, realizing that, uh, they put out an SOS to uh, John Cale, who is better known as J.J. Cale. He said, they said, this guy's, you know, you know, he might be going down for the third time, so you got to come come out and, and help us do something with him. So Kale uh, went to Sunset Sound with me and immediately went to the uh, control room couch, and every session he'd just lay down and take a nap. And I'd come in and wake him up after about the third or fourth take and go, what'd I do? Hey, hey, what should we do? You want to listen to that? What'd you think of that take? And he go, no, no, it's it's fine, man. Just uh, go on back, do another song. That that was great. That was really good. And finally, after I did that about three or four times with him, I, I started to relax and enjoy the experience of being in there. And and that's when the session started working. So although he is not credited, and and he should be on that record, uh, I really uh, remember how much that he he helped me make those recordings but he said it was essential it was almost like he was like kind of his spirit animal just sort of sleeping in the corner of the studio and giving him the the confidence to to play and carry on it's amazing what you can hear while you're asleep in the studio and that vibe would set it up for for these absolutely beautiful dreams the vibe of that music yeah (laughs) so we should say jody that you're actually in your studio at ardent right now aren't you I am. I'm on uh, Studio B floor, what is now Studio B floor. Uh, and I'm kind of sequestered back here because Arden is undergoing a pretty massive renovation, the control rooms. And uh, so I, I, I'm really excited about that. And uh, so it's, I felt like this is a pretty good place to hang out because it's not, we have Big Star didn't record in here much. This was the control room early on. And we, but we did do some demos and uh, in this room. A lot of a lot of great records have been mixed in the control room. I can see a drum kit behind you. Is um is that of any importance or significance? Well, it's basically how I've gotten through my musical life since 1972. Uh, got that kit. It was the first oversized Ludwig kit, and, and I got it in '72 and. So it's on Radio City and Third and Golden's Monster Weird Tales and of course the pretty wrong stuff. 
uh, and uh, Bird Street. I did some recording with uh, John Broder and Pat Sansone in a little group called Bird Street. I think three songs with them. But it appears here and there. Math, well, no, I didn't use it on Matthew Sweet. Yeah, it's an old friend. I'm lucky to still have it. It's Jody Stevens, and you're listening to the Mojo Record Club. Just going back to the the Willis Allen Ramsey album, it kind of, you were saying that it's within Texas and within Austin, it's, it's, am I guessing if that this album is still a pretty big deal that, you know, you still, you'll meet people who know it and kind of. I would think so. Although I, I don't know multiple trips to Austin. And I don't think I ever really talked to anybody about Willis Allen Ramsey other than, uh, one of the gentlemen who co-founded, uh, the uh, South by Southwest, and uh, and then who's no longer with us, and for some reason I just I'm blanking on his name, but uh, you know he's he he's been at least had knowledge of when Willis goes in the studio, and and uh, I would talk to him, and he would say, well yeah the record's really going to come out, it's going to come out in May, and that that scenario repeated itself over the years. I guess for the last 20 years since I engaged talking to him about it. So, but I would think it's still a big deal. It, it's ageless. It's uh, ageless, timeless. Uh, you know, it, it, you're newcomers to the record and, and you uh, obviously are excited about it. So it's, it'll be around for ages. And you know, when Willis, when Willis, when Willis, when people ask Willis about, you know, when's your second record going to come out? I think he has two kind of stock answers. And one of which is, why, what's wrong with the first one? And then <laughs> the second one is... It's true. Yeah. And uh, and the second one is soon. But I guess soon is relative. Yeah. So there you go. He's one of those writers beloved by his peers. Here is a nice little clip of another Texas singer-songwriter, Steve Fromholtz, singing Ramsey's praises around the time the album came out in 1972. Who do you think you like more than anyone else for writing? People sure. whose songs you really admire, the type of songs that you say, boy, I wish I could write that. A fellow named Willis Ramsey, a friend of mine who's on Shelter Records, is a really good songwriter. He's way ahead of himself. I think he just turned 21. Changed his name to Willis Allen Ramsey when he got famous. Anyway. <laughs> There's some funky things on that album, too. Yeah. Good grief. Wish I was a millionaire. Satin sheets, Play yeah. rock music, grow long hair. <laughs> Tell you, boy, so buy a new Rolls Royce. <laughs> That's just how he Willis sounds. Ramsey. Man has such a unique style. I read somewhere that this album is single-handedly responsible for spawning the alternative Nashville scene in Austin, Texas. One of the reasons I was kind of reading, I mean, the record only sold moderately. And then like a lot of people, he fell out with um, the label's co-owner, Denny Cordell, but didn't have the money to get out of his contract. So he basically sat out his contract for eight years until Correct. 1980. Yeah, very much so. By which time he felt the music scene had passed him by. But I suppose also, if you've got America and then Captain and Tennille recording um, Muskrat Love. And I would imagine that the Captain and Tennille cover version brought in quite a lot of money for him. Then, as you say, there's that temptation to think, well, what is what is the need to record again? Because I'm doing quite well out of the, you know, the money that I make through this record and the number of people who've covered it. Yeah, and I think also there... You know, Big Star went through this a bit uh, when Alex and I got together with uh, John Allen and Ken Stringfellow and over the years mulling about doing a Big Star record and what what how that might impact our legacy. And I think I think I read somewhere where Willis was a bit concerned about that. Maybe, you know, times have changed and uh, and that sort of thing. But, yeah, I didn't I didn't kind of put the two and two together of falling out with the label and waiting out his contract for eight years uh that would kind of you know make sense uh but then you know that kind of carried on for a lot 50 years we've talked a lot about how the record feels quite lonesome uh, and that but i also think there's another aspect to it which maybe feeds into this 
which is a, it sounds an immensely laid-back record as well. That it doesn't sound, even though there are some forlorn, you know, lost love songs on there. There are some quite funky things as well, and it has quite a. I wonder whether one of the reasons why it managed to that some of these songs managed to transition from quite a rootsy, authentic Americana Texas scene into this kind of soft rock world is just because of that kind of easygoing nature which they have musically as well. They, well, I, I'm assuming one of the funky songs you're talking about is Northeast Texas Women. And uh, and I brought that up because I had a conversation with Carl Marsh this morning. Carl did the string arrangements for Big Star's Third and uh, went on from Memphis to go to Nashville and be a really successful uh, musician and, and arranger. But... Uh, Carl was part of the session that, uh, or at least was there, uh, when they cut Northeast Texas Women at Dan Penn's studio. It's called Beautiful Sounds here in Memphis. It was over on Highland. And uh, Carl's contribution, however, for that session was, why don't you grab an old coat, coat crate? You know, those the wooden ones. I, if you're old enough, or, or maybe you see them in antique stores now. Uh, and use that for percussion. You can stomp on it because blues artists were doing that. In particular, uh, uh, God, now I'm drawing another bank. But in particular, a, a, a particular blues artist here in Memphis would, would put out this coke crate and stomp on it for percussion while he was playing. Furry Lewis. I think that's one of the, the secrets of the album, that it doesn't feel like a kind of purist work. It kind of, it, it crosses over into, you know, sort of there's little bits of funk and soul and, and Southern soul in there as well. And it's kind of, it's not purely a piece of kind of, you know, it's not purely a kind of rootsy American album. There's a kind of, as you say, there's, there's a laid back kind of soulfulness to it. It's very much like a debut album in the sense it feels like a calling card. It's basically Ramsey saying, I can do all these things. You know, I can turn my hand to all these styles. Sure. I, uh, for some reason, I wanted to throw in just a little note about Boy From Oklahoma, one of the songs on the record. And, uh, well, I've, I've seen a list of musicians that, are, that perform on the record. I haven't seen track breakdown downs as to who played on what but boy from oklahoma it uh you know and again the groove that these players establish in these songs is just incredible uh and boy for oklahoma is no exception and that's got to be russ conkle and in willis yeah in willis in those guitar it's brilliant because it's he's a lot like james taylor in that those guitar parts only can be can only accompany the guy who's singing it and playing it. You know, yeah. there's that that relation that quick relationship. And in Boy from Oklahoma, there's a bit of James Taylor in there, and certainly Fire and Rain and Russ Kunkel's parts and the power. I'm assuming he's he playing brushes in Boy from Oklahoma too. Oh no, absolutely. And when you read the few interviews that Ramsey's given, one of the things that he does do is single those two guys out and basically says how important it was that he basically had James Taylor's rhythm section backing him up and sort of supporting him on the album and kind of how integral that is. But, you know, as you listen to the record, you realize there's a bit of scatting in there. Even if it, yeah. even if they're lyrics, there's a bit of scatting. And if you go back and listen to Bill Robinson, kind of the original Bojangos, Bojangles, uh, it's like, I wonder if Willis ever listened to Bill Robinson. It's kind of, it's, it's absolutely fascinating because it is one of those records that when you first hear it, you think this is, this is a nice laid back bit of kind of, you know, Southern country roots album. And the more you listen to it, you know, and the deeper you go into it, the richer it gets. There's a very nice little clip um, actually from 1972. Um, Cause I was just thinking about how beloved he was of his peers. There's a guy called, um, uh, sing, another Texas singer-songwriter, Steve Fromholtz, uh, singing um, Willis Allen Ramsey's praises on a radio show from 1972. And I thought it'd be nice just to play a little bit of that and, and hear kind of how he was talked about at the time. Because you realize that, you know, with, it, with amongst his peers, 
And amongst those, you know, that Texas set, it was a big deal. This record was a big deal. It was a deal. Let's play that. Brilliant. Yeah, we'll play that and then come back to it. Yeah. So, I mean, you can tell that at the time, this there was a buzz about this record certainly amongst kind of you know the cognoscenti the people who knew yeah i that, that's what i've read as well and certainly uh mike sane bringing that uh record to memphis uh, uh, you know there are a bunch of people that uh that became fans and followers and you know and <clears throat> i don't know so much anticipating the second record because the first was would would have been hard to leave yeah. Have you ever met him or been in contact with him? I have. My wife, Diana, and I had lunch with him one day at, the, at a BMI uh, lunch in New York City. Nice guy. Sweet guy. Enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, Leon Russell did some work here at Arden. Don Nix, uh, who was... who was I side- love those Don Nix albums. Yeah. Yeah, it, brilliant. He's a sweetheart. I just talked to him yesterday, and and uh, but I read this story. John Fry. I was talking about Willis Allen Ramsey one day. John Fry, the uh, big stars mentor and engineer, brilliant. Started Ardent when he was fourteen. Uh, I was talking about Willis Allen Ramsey, and John Fry chimed in with, "Oh, Willis Allen Ramsey." He said, "God, I I, I love the song, but." Willis drove us crazy because he was indecisive. And I thought, well, you were there. I mean, that, that, I, uh, yeah, that, uh, that, and in keeping with, with taking more than 50 years for a second record. But then I read something somewhere where Leon was, had come to Ardent and to listen to some of Willis's tracks, I guess, that had just been cut. And he got inspired and went in and improvised. And I have a feeling it was the vibraphone part on Muskrat Love. Uh, because yeah. I think we had a vibraphone hanging around the studio at that point. And uh, Leon just picked up the mallets, I guess. And and it creates that uh, kind of floating, uh, drifting sort of sound in, in Muskrat Love. It's brilliant. Well, I think we, maybe we should play a little bit of that song because, I mean... If people know it, they'll probably know it through the the Captain Antoniel version, which Willis is not. He's very polite when he's asked about that cover version, but he you can tell he's not a fan. But he does say it's like a prodigal son who left home and occasionally sends checks from Hollywood. So you can tell that kind of that sort of sums up his relationship to it. It's kind of like, I'm not sure how I feel about it, but the checks help. But maybe we should play a little bit of the song. This is Muskrat Candlelight, a.k.a. Muskrat Love, written by Willis Allen Ramsey and originally released on the Shelter Recording Company label and A&M Records in the UK. Floating like the heavens above Looks like muskrat love So Jody, you said that you and your wife sat down and met Willis Allen Ramsey. Did you ask him about the record and did you grill him on anything that you wanted to know about it? I don't think so. I think I just uh, listened to him talk and, and the general conversation around the table. I, uh, mm. Boy, and, and I was looking for his a, a way to contact him over the past couple of days and couldn't seem to find one. Maybe I'm sure probably because I didn't look hard enough. But it would have been fun to talk to him before this interview to see. Uh, one in particular, what, he, what he'd done at Arden. But uh, yeah, I, I, for the longest time, I wasn't as curious as I should have been. I got curious as I got older. That's often the way. But I thank you, I mean, thank you so much for introducing it to, to our world and bringing it onto the show because it's been, 
a joy. And I wonder whether if you, I kind of haven't asked you this, what track, because we'll play another track and I think it should be your choice. What track would you play to people who'd never heard this album before and maybe explain a bit about why? Oh, goodness. Uh, you know, I might play Boy From Oklahoma simply because it's a tribute to Woody, Woody Guthrie. Uh, you know, it was apparently a, an influence on Willis and 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 the track, it just falls into this amazing groove that I would be surprised if it wasn't Russ Kunkel and Lee Scalar, uh on that track. It's just, a, you know, a cool song. But I, I have to make a note about reading willis still plays to this day I, I, I it's not that often but on one of his facebook posts he says hey i'll be playing at so and so he said come hear songs about food sex and little animals uh which <laughs> you know it's uh oh wait you know maybe maybe geraldine and the honeybee because it's a delightful story about a, a honeybee's relationship with, I'm assuming, a, a chrysanthemum flower that's growing up out of a compost pile. But all these kind of uh, reference, sexual references, but really in a very playful kind of way. So maybe that. Absolutely. It kind of, yeah, I think that's a really good choice. And also, again, it shows, I think that's one of the things about the record and that's so tantalizing about it. It doesn't feel like, you know, what they call a one and done record. It doesn't feel like that's all he wrote. It offers up so many different directions in terms of where he could have gone and the different routes he could have taken, the different styles he could have adopted because it's, he's so good across all the board. Even if he decided to do like Woody Guthrie did, an album of songs about animals for children. He could have done that. You know, he could have he could have basically kind of turned his hand to any of those things. And so it doesn't feel like... That was one of the joys of listening to it after you recommended it to me. It doesn't feel like a closed record. It doesn't feel like it's kind of, this is what I do. It, feel, it felt... You listen to it and what you hear is kind of promise and what could he do next? Which maybe explains why people feel compelled to say... You know, where's where's the next record? Right, yeah, that's brilliant. I actually think that we're going to go with uh, Boy from Oklahoma because yes, it's about Woody Guthrie, but I also think there's a little bit of um, autobiography in there about Willis Allen Ramsey, and I kind of think that's the reason why it has that kind of heart and soul that you really feel that he's um, he's singing from within. He's not just singing about Woody; he's singing about himself. So let's complete our exploration of this wonderful record with Boy From Oklahoma, written by Willis Allen Ramsey and originally released on the Shelter Recording Company label and A&M Records in the UK. Special guy, especially if you look back, which I did because I'm more familiar with contemporary pictures of him now. But I went back and looked at pictures of Willis when he was 20. He looks like a, I mean, a kid, and and uh, and he's got this curious look on his face. This kind of maybe he's up to something, you know, uh, innocent, but you know, up to something. Um, and to, to try to put that face with the, the, the worldliness and, and emotions is on that record and coming through that voice is hard to do. Yeah. You don't, you don't kind of give it an age. You don't kind of place an age on him when you're hearing it. Or if you do, you think it's someone who's lived and traveled. You know, you kind of... yeah. It's sort of a you know a kind of a you know a Tony Joe Weiss or something or a, you know kind of the, the, somebody who's kind of created this image of of having lived a life well, and he's George, he's hardly begun yeah. to live and yet he's yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Lowell George it has that quality to it as well. Yeah, I think I think sometimes these one-off records we apply this kind of great mystique to them and and create this yeah um, and we try and find things about the artists that feel enigmatic but to me this doesn't feel a, a massively enigmatic record and i think that's why it feels like no there should have been 10 more kind of after it because yeah it, it like you say it feels like he's just starting out and if and it's interesting jody you're talking about what you've heard of his indecisiveness because it's that confidence with which he can flex his different genres and move through those songs and how fully formed they are. And that there are, it doesn't feel like there's anything hiding in the nooks and crannies. It feels like it's all out there and he's ready for the next one. It's kind of, it's, which makes it yeah. kind of wonderful, well, but infuriating, I think. It's a brilliant, that record's a brilliant example of when he does make a decision, it's the right one. Yeah. Absolutely. And it kind of maybe explains that J.J. Kale anecdote, you know, that kind of the need to go over and say to J.J., is everything going OK? Is everything going fine? And just to have him say whether he was awake or not, whether he was listening or not. Yeah, keep doing what you're doing, kid. It's great. You know, and just needing that little presence there. Um, Jody, thank you so much. What a absolute um, joy, delight, delightful discovery. It's a pleasure. One thing I've always enjoyed about playing music is uh, early on when my brother and I had a band together, we do recovery materials, material, we get it, we get invited to parties we would never have been invited to. And so as I've stayed in music, it's always been the case, but, uh, and I would have missed out on this conversation with y'all in this time of spending together if I hadn't been in music. So it's, it's, it's pretty cool that I, I, it puts me in these situations and meeting new people and all that. It's a pleasure. You are listening to the Mojo Record Club. Okay, now we get to the part of the show where we profile two of our favorite new albums. My choice is Curie Man. It's the debut international album by the 47-year-old Brazilian singer-songwriter Roger. Now, this is very much in my world as it's a throwback to the MPB style of Brazilian music from the early 70s. It's produced by Charles Bradley's former collaborator, Thomas Brennick, and it calls on all the rich samba styles of early George Ben, but with arrangements by the Brazilian legend, Arthur Veracay. This is the bright, joyous, multicolored Maya Vida. Written by Roger José Curie, arranged by Arthur Veracay, and released on Diamond West Records. It's really good. I mean, I am a skeptic when it comes to things like that. You know, I'm very much wary of kind of contemporary artists doing stuff in the style of, of, you know, kind of retro stylings and everything. But this is not that. This is the real thing. It's kind of, it's produced beautifully. It could, it could be a lost album, a lost Brazilian album from the early 70s. It has... I don't speak Portuguese, so I have no way of knowing how authentic it is in terms of the actual lyrics, but the mood of it, the feel of it. I mean, I've got, you know, so many of these records from the time, and this one just fits right in. It convinces. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, the, there, are some, there are some tracks where I... Th- I suppose... I suppose I- I was a bit sceptical first time as well, I have to say, because I'm not always 100% sold on those records that Thomas Brennick did at Daptone with people like Charles Bradley because they're beautifully rendered, but they sometimes feel a little bit like pastiche and the, the backstories and the sound is really good, but maybe the songs aren't quite so great and it suffers in comparison. 
But having said that, when a pastiche is of something that I really like and it's really well done and the material stands up, Absolutely. I'm kind of fine with that, to be honest. And so, and so if a record has one track that really reminds me of, like, what could what could be yeah. a lost Caetano Veloso song, and then the next one sounds yeah. like a lost Gilberto Gilles song, it's kind of ridiculous because of how studied and knowing it is. But at the same time, I'm carried away by it because it's just really nice music. It's really good music. But I also think bringing in Verakai to do the arrangements, even though by all accounts it nearly, you know, broke the, broke the bank, yeah. kind of bank, bankrupted them all, the amount that they had to pay him. But it works, and it kind of it it lends an extra kind of an extra layer to the record that isn't it isn't just about sort of production pastiche that you've actually got someone who was there at the time adding his own kind of layer of authenticity so to speak but it is authentic it is the it real genuinely thing genuinely is yeah. yeah it's tangible history within exactly. the sound of the record and that's yeah. that's a really nice connection i think i think i think we should be clear that yes. it's actually a brazilian doing this as well it's not some guy it's, it's not some guy from la who's just kind of appropriating although there's nothing intrinsically wrong with that either it's for, in fairness but it is someone who's very much kind of uh, embedded in the contemporary Brazilian scene. He's made a record with... Um, uh, God, I've forgotten his name. The guy who did the um, uh, Bowie covers on um, Life yeah. Aquatic. Sio uh, Jorge. He, he made a, I think he made a record with him a year or two back. So he has kind of currency within uh, Brazil. And it, I feel at some point I should go and listen to a bunch of those other records because it'd be interesting to see whether he's actually rendered his music more nostalgic yeah. and more old-fashioned for a non-Brazilian audience? Is he making more contemporary records for a Brazilian audience and then kind of... They don't sound at all like how contemporary Brazilian samba artists no, are recording at the moment, you know. It sounds just... like a record made for Tropicalia nerds in Britain, in America and Europe, really, which is, which is yeah. fine. I'm totally Yeah, you, you make it you sound know? sort of vaguely perverse, you know, kind of, it's made for like kind of... Yeah, exactly. Tropicalia nerds unite. There's nothing to be ashamed of. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but no, it's. I mean, I think that the proof is just kind of having it on in the house and not flinching at any kind of like production touches that just felt wrong or inappropriate. It just fitted right in with 1973. Yeah, it's something. What there's a, there was a record last year by a guy called Tim Bernardes, which which operated in a slightly similar zone maybe slightly more contemporary but that's a really nice record as well if you if you're into this stuff it's um it's another good reference point to visit the record you've chosen to bring in is it's quite different it's quite but different. there are still points at which you think oh this is an audible throwback to sort of previous styles maybe explain what your record of the week is yeah yeah, so it's um, it's the debut album by a London-based band called The Tubs. I think the main two guys in the band are from Wales originally. Um, it, it's been out a few weeks, in all honesty, but although I'd like to pretend that Mojo's on top of everything months in advance, sometimes even, even our thorough kind of processes miss the odd record, and I think we all miss this one. Um, and I think maybe one of the reasons, personally, was that the tubs or the main members of the tubs used to be in a punk band that I'm afraid were called Joanna Gruesome. That's Joanna Gruesome, uh, that I wasn't too keen on. But I suppose listening to the tubs records called Dead Meat, by the way, is a good lesson in not writing off a band because you didn't like their old one because it's really great. What turned me on to it was a bunch of people on Twitter actually talking about how it reminded them of an idea of Richard Thompson fronting the feelies or maybe something on Flying Nun. And I have to say, that's <laughs> exactly what it sounds like. It's, it, it's sort of precise, withering, jangling... Throat, 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 throat rock, rock would rock. be... Yeah. Folk rock. <laughs> throat rock would yeah. be good. Tooth and throat singing at, at rock velocity. Um, precise, withering... Jang I'll reread that. Precise, withering, jangling folk rock that's been radically accelerated. Um, 
I was, I was playing it the other day at home and my wife came in and said, that really sounds like Bob Mould and Sugar. And she was right as well, actually. But I guess because Bob Mould, because Bob Mould always wanted to be a punk Richard Thompson anyway, so that totally makes sense. But again, as we were talking about with um, Roger, the key here is it's not just pastiche. It's not just a really good idea. They're really good songs too. Okay, we should probably hear a track. This is Wretched Lie, the ridiculous sweet spot between Witch Season Records and Flying Nun Records, where Backlash Love Affair meets Kiwi Euphoria, written by Owen Williams and George Nichols, and out now on Trouble in Mind. You are always on my mind You are always on my mind You are absolutely right. It's like... <laughs> Everyone's right yeah. about it. It's but, kind of like... you know, kind of... And that kind of... Or there's almost a kind of... it. You know, it pushes into that sort of folk rock sort of vocal stylings, which kind of like... Is, is, and yet tonally and almost melodically, that shouldn't sit right with you know, kind of flying nun records and the, you know, or the chills or whatever, you know, kind of there shouldn't be any meeting point there because it's much more, the distinction is much more overt than in Bob Mould, you know, kind of where yeah, you can yeah. tell that he's going for in a kind of an electrified Richard Thompson sound, you know, kind of, and much, yes. you know, the, the point of connection is much more obvious. But here, those two distinct sounds are distinct and yet it works brilliantly. And I love how... They just don't kind of hang around. I mean, the album's something like the album's like thirty minutes long. Yeah, it almost feels like a mini album, yeah. and then you realise the, there's been ten or eleven tracks. But don't you realise the cover is commendably dreadful? You know, it's kind of, <laughs> I mean, it's kind of there's a real kind of um, applaudable sort of shoddiness about how they sort of present it. But when you're actually listening to it, you're kind of you're caught in the uplift. There's a real kind of... Um... Uh, and we should also say there's something quite grotty about the lyrics quite yes. often yeah. as well. It's all like snivelling and it's quite, it's, it's quite narky in, in a sort of dirty squat way kind of thing a lot yeah. of the time. It's, it's, um, it's, yeah, it's not it... quite sort of squat punk Richard Thompson, but you kind of like, you can, you can imagine that, you know, the younger, it, you know, that if kind of, the Fairports were kind of, you know, living next door to Crass, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I, um, I live quite close to uh, the, um, the what was at that time a disused pub that they all, uh, that Fairports lived in, in um, Little Haddam in the early 70s. And uh, I, in Richard Thompson's autobiography, the, uh, the living conditions there, even before the truck drove through Dave Swarbrick's bedroom wall, um, kind of had, did feel pretty uh, um, grungy. Yeah, well, they ca- and, they totally uh, capture that, you know. That, that, they do, yeah. yeah. There, there's, real, there's real folk grime in those grooves. Folk grime, yeah, yeah maybe that's what it is. It's a, it's a brilliant record, though. It, it no, really, it is. It really is. It's, it's exhilarating in a way that I have to say most British indie records kind of aren't. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't feel kind of studied or mannered or arch or, or, or kind of even... And the ridiculous thing is, even though we've been saying that it's a kind of through, throwback to two very distinct styles, it doesn't feel... Which is maybe this is the theme of um, today's show... It doesn't feel like pastiche. It doesn't feel like yeah. they're kind of taking sort of, you know, in the same way that kind of, you know, post-punk or kind of any any other kind of movements have been kind of parodied and pastiche by kind of contemporary British indie groups. This has a real freshness to it. Yeah, we should also say there's, um, uh, I think, I think, I think she's the former lead singer of Joanna Gruesome, a name I will never get tired of not of being annoyed by. But um, but she joins in sometimes to give these kind of perfect Zatz uh, Linda harmonies yeah. to the lead singer's Richard voice as well. Which is brilliant. Kind of, I mean, kind of, it's yeah. something that I need to address because I too avoided Joanna Gruesome on the basis of their name, and I do think you know, and you do kind of catch yourself saying. You know, is my stand too strong against bands who I think have got dreadful names? You know, because then, you know, I, 
I've not really listened to King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard because I just find their names <laughs> so annoying. Yeah, they're great. It's fine. You know, they, what they do yeah. is brilliant. But I, there's something that rubs... I just think if if that's what the name you've decided to put out into the world, not that the Tubs is any great world, you know, any great work of kind of marketing genius, but it... it it does the job the tubs it's it's a real kind of flying nun name yeah the tubs, exactly actually, which which is good i think uh, i mean there's only so many records you can listen to and and you have to you have to make some fairly crude assumptions yeah. that the aesthetics of band naming and record sleeve design are kind of somehow kin to the sonic aesthetic, the, ob- the musical or, or, aesthetic. Why you've not? To, why not? Got because, to draw the line somewhere. You know? Why not? Because the opposite is true. You know, if you would buy a record on the basis of a beautiful sleeve, or the fact that you just think, you know, kind of a name is perfect, then why shouldn't the opposite be true? Yeah. Right. True. On that, I'm trying to remember the name of the uh, punk band uh, of, that's name is a pun on Lana Del Rey, and and I think I've, in 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 the latest iteration of Terrible Joanna Gruesome like yeah. names of bands that I haven't listened yeah. to. So what I'm going to do after this podcast is I'm going to find out the name of that band <laughs> and I'm going to listen to it and see see and, whether this yeah. rigid maxim is is kind of exactly. I'm going to going to be a better person as a consequence exactly. of this podcast today. Well, actually. look if if nothing else, John. We've achieved that today, apart from uh, <laughs> the, the the listening to the wonderful Jody Stevens um, in tell us about the yeah. absolute genius of Willis Allen Ramsey. Okay, you have been listening to Jody Stevens, John Mulvey, and myself, Andrew Mayle. That was the Mojo Record Club, and we hope to see you at the next one. You can all join in. Look in the episode description for full details of all the tracks we played and how to sign up for the next episode. Hey, people, darn it, you've been listening to the Moto Record Club. Haven't you been paying attention? A Bilbo Bopper.